Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to the Gospel according to Mark, and we're turning to Mark chapter 6 today. And if you're using the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 842. Mark chapter 6, and beginning our reading at verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever, uh, wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. We have been uh, looking at Mark's gospel uh, for a number of weeks. And as we have been looking at this gospel together, we have been thinking about the question of the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And do we understand why he came into this world, what he was doing during his earthly life? And you remember that Jesus has done several miracles, which are meant to testify, they're meant to show something of his mission. And most recently, Jesus did this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 men out in the wilderness. But you remember that one of the details that uh, emerges from that miracle was not only that Jesus showed the compassion of God, on those who were like sheep without a shepherd, that Jesus began to address them, uh, teaching them many things because they did not understand uh, the things of God. They were like those who didn't have a leader. And Jesus presented himself as that compassion uh, of God, as that good shepherd who leads the people in the truth. But at the end of that miracle, we are told that the crowd who had been fed recognize this as a sign and if you read in other gospel accounts if you read for instance in john's gospel it tells us that the people who were fed by jesus saw this as a sign that this was the one that they were looking for this was the man who was going to be raised up to be their king and it says that in john 6 that they wanted to take jesus by force and to make him 
their king. That they were looking to Jesus as their political savior. This is the man who is going to lead us into battle against the Romans. This is the man who is going to liberate us. And so there was a great fervor, there was a great excitement that happened as a result of this miracle. The people there are looking at Jesus in a certain light. And you remember that it tells us here in verse 45 that immediately he made his disciples get into uh, a boat or into the boat and to go before him over to the other side. He made his disciples get into a boat. The King James captures the force behind this even better. And it says that Jesus constrained his disciples to get into the boat. There was a force behind this, which implies that the disciples didn't want to go anywhere. That, that not only had they seen something wonderful in this uh, miracle, but the disciples were, they were excited along with the crowd that there was some enthusiasm and, uh, and excitement surrounding what this all meant. And the disciples here are witnessing how the crowd is perceiving Jesus. And that explains why Jesus is forcing the disciples to leave. Because Jesus doesn't want his 12 to entertain or to embrace this notion of Jesus being a political savior. Jesus is not one who has come to make war with the Romans in physical combat. And so Jesus tells the disciples that they must separate. Uh, he is protecting them again, uh, protecting them from a distorted understanding of who he is. And so he, he sends the disciples off and then he releases or he dismisses the crowd as well. And all of this serves as the, the context for what happens next. It tells us that after he sends off the disciples and after he dismisses the crowd, that Jesus turns to a time in prayer. Uh, the Gospels tell us often that Jesus uh, prayed and that Jesus put a certain priority on prayer itself. Uh, for instance, uh, not only does Jesus himself teach us how to pray, but Jesus emphasizes the importance of private prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus himself says, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to the Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus demonstrates the importance of private prayer here by himself withdrawing in order to turn to the Lord uh, in privacy. Uh, he doesn't have a door to shut. Uh, but uh, not having the privacy of a home, Jesus withdraws to the mountains. And all of this underscores the importance that Jesus gives to prayer. Uh, it is good and important for us to pray together, collectively. But we shouldn't put collective prayer at odds with private prayer. And we shouldn't neglect one for the sake of the other. Jesus here is showing us, even as he taught, the importance of praying by ourselves. Because fellowship with God is a personal thing. And that we are to turn to the Lord as individuals as well as a people. And all of this then raises the question that if we profess to be Christians this morning, do you pray in private? Do you pray when no one else is watching? Because Jesus himself turned to God in prayer. Jesus himself prayed to the Father in private even to the point where he would dismiss crowds 
and that he would send off his disciples so that he had that opportunity to pray to God, not only before he did great works, but even after he had done great works. And all of this then stresses the importance that if we ourselves are followers of Christ, we need to make sure that prayer continues to be at the forefront of our lives. We live in busy times, and prayer is one of those things that can easily fall to the wayside. And as we think back perhaps on our last week, or if you look back on your last month, is prayer still something that is structured into your day or into your, in the way of you using your time? Prayer is something that is important. And Jesus himself uh, demonstrates that by turning to the Lord in prayer. But we're told that all of this uh, serves as the background for the separation of the disciples. They went out on the water and we're told in verse 47 that when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and that he was on the land. And this, this morning we want to look at this miracle that takes place where Jesus walks on the water. Mark couldn't actually say it any plainer than he says it. The wording that he uses, Jesus was on top of the water. He uses it two times to stress that this was a miraculous thing that was happening. Uh, this wasn't a mirage. This wasn't Jesus walking on a sandbar. This wasn't something that uh, simply looked different. This was Jesus walking on the water. And what we want to see that is, is because Jesus reveals the presence of God, that we can find comfort in all of our difficulties. That what Jesus is doing in this miracle is he is demonstrating, he is showing us the presence of God. And because God is present, those who know this God can find true comfort. And we want to think about this miracle then in terms of the display of God's presence and then the difficulty in the disciples understanding this miracle. Well, first, we want to give uh, the bulk of our attention to this idea of the miracle being displayed. It tells us that they were out on the, the water there in verse 47. Uh, they were out on the sea. In John's gospel, you'll notice that the description that John gives is, is that they were about four and a half to five and a half kilometers out from the shoreline. So these people, uh, these fishermen, these disciples are nowhere close to getting back to shore. They are out in the midst of the lake. And Jesus can see them uh, here in the fourth watch of the night. According to Roman custom, you would have the night broken into four sections. And so this section would be between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. The darkest part of the night is over. And the light of the sunrise is just beginning to show itself. They're able to see something of what is going on. And Jesus is able to see that the disciples are out on the water, but they're making headway painfully because the wind is against them. Maybe you can relate with that at some point. Maybe if you've ever gone rowing uh, in a rowboat or maybe you're out in a canoe and the tide is against you or the wind is against you, you might be paddling with all your strength. But as much as you're trying, you're not making any headway. You're just maintaining your position against the wind or against the tide. And it can be exhausting to be pouring your strength in and not actually moving forward. That's kind of the example or the, the situation the disciples were in. They're just not going anywhere because the wind is resisting them from moving about. And Jesus can see this and we're told that as a result, Jesus went out to them. But what is striking about the miracle 
is not just the fact that Jesus walks on the water, but we want to ask the question, why does Jesus do that? Why is Jesus walking on the water in the first place? What does it mean? And to that, we want to see how this is described for us in the verses uh, around it. It says that uh, when he saw them, uh, but uh, in verse 47, uh, it says, uh, sorry, in verse 48, it says that he saw them and then he came to them walking on the sea and he meant to pass by them. Or as the King James says, he would have passed by them. What does it mean that Jesus came to them walking on the water and then the very next statement says that he would have passed by them? Why would Jesus walk on the water only to pass by or intend to pass by the disciples? And people have wrestled with what is being described here. Some have said, well, maybe what is being described here is it's, it's describing it from the disciples' point of view. As the disciples saw it, They saw this figure out on the waters, and it looked like to them that the the figure was going to pass them by. From their perception, their point of view, that's what it looked like was going to happen. And that may be true, that from their point of view, that's what it seemed like was going to happen. But it still doesn't answer why it seemed like Jesus was going to pass by them. And if we're going to understand why it says that he would have passed by them, The best way to understand that is by letting scripture interpret scripture and to look at this event in terms of Old Testament theophanies. What's a theophany? A theophany is simply a fancy word to talk about God showing himself. Theos is a word for God and a phenos or uh, the, the phenophany part is talking about a showing. And so in the Old Testament, we are taught that the invisible God shows his presence to his people at times in intense or very dramatic ways. Vernon Poitras describes the theophany that way. He says it is a manifesting of God's presence accompanied by an extraordinary display mediating that presence. And we see it in different uh, times throughout the Old Testament that God, the invisible God, who is spirit, still is able to show himself to his creatures. That God showed himself, he manifested his presence to Moses at the burning bush. And he revealed to Moses his name. But there's other times as well. Uh, Not only uh, was there the burning bush, but perhaps even more famous is the passage we read there in Exodus. You remember that the people had just made the golden calf. They had just forfeited the covenant blessings. They had broken God's covenant. And God would be now right to bring his judgment on them. And you remember that he threatened, I will not go with you. I will send an angel with you. But I, my presence, will not go. That was the result of their sins. And you remember how Moses himself said, if you will not go with us, then there's no point moving forward. That we need to have your presence so that we know that we have your favor. And you remember Moses pleaded, please show me your glory. And how did God answer Moses? That in figuring out what to do with the people of Israel, the Lord answered Moses by saying, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. 
I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. No one can see my face and live. And the Lord said, here is a place uh, by me and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall be not seen. Four times in that encounter, Moses was told that God would pass before him. He would pass by him and that God's presence would be made known to Moses through that action. God would declare his glory but he would not see his face. Another example of these Old Testament theophanies is with Elijah. You remember that Elijah was a prophet who contended against the the false prophets of Baal. And as a result, the wicked Queen Jezebel threatened to kill Elijah that very day. And Elijah fled to a cave and he had had enough. Elijah wanted to be dead. And he said he had been very zealous for God. He had contended for the truth. And now he alone was left. But the question came to Elijah. God spoke to him and said, what are you doing here? And Elijah insisted that he had been zealous for the Lord and that he was the only one left. And it tells us then as a result that God caused an earthquake. But he was not the earthquake that God caused his presence to be made known to Elijah, even though it was in a veiled way. God was not the earthquake, but he manifested his presence nevertheless. And so as Jesus here is walking on the water to his disciples, we have to bear in mind that he is, as one person says, he is walking where only God can walk. No one else is walking on the water except God alone. And that's something that the the scriptures celebrate. You turn to the book of Job and Job tells us that God is the God who treads on the waves. You turn to Isaiah and it tells us that the Lord is the one who is mighty and makes a path through the waters. You think about the Exodus. God is a God who accompanies his people and who leads his people. Even though their footprints were not seen, God was with them. His presence accompanied them, and he directed them ultimately to their safe haven. He went before them. He led them on the way. And so when it says that Jesus was going to pass by them, he was going to go before them, it is the idea that Jesus here is manifesting the presence of God, and he is leading them to their safe haven. But when these disciples see it, they they realize that this is no ordinary physical creature and they conclude it must be nothing more than a ghost and so they're terrified and when they're in terror and they shout out Jesus then turns to them and comes to their aid and brings them comfort but the reason why Jesus is passing before them is is that he is leading them ultimately to their safe haven through the storm but he pauses and he turns to them because of their panic and of their terror. So in doing this, Jesus is manifesting the presence of God in the midst of their difficulties. But in doing so, it is telling us something about Jesus himself. He is the presence of God, embodiment. Remember, that's what the whole question is. The crowds are excited about this Jesus. He's, 
He's the man who can raise up uh, a deliverance over Rome. They have a certain understanding of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't want his disciples to go down that route. He sends them off. He sends them into the storm. But when he sends them into the storm, Jesus is going to show them how they should rightly understand him. He is God in the flesh, walking on the waves. He hasn't come simply to bring a political deliverance. He has come to show God's salvation. He is the help from heaven that has come down, that has been sent in truth and love. He is the one who has come to bring salvation from sin. And so he shows himself in a way that brings out his glory. When the disciples saw it, they thought it was a ghost. And this was not just one disciple, but this was the collective view of all of them because they all saw this, a figure moving on the waters, and they could not identify it. And so they were filled with terror. So the display, why is Jesus doing this? He's showing the presence of God, but he's showing the presence of God to teach his disciples how to rightly understand him. He's not just a political ruler. He is God in the flesh. But as he comes to them, notice how he addresses them. Uh, They were filled with terror. And then Jesus, when he addresses them, he says, take heart in verse uh, 50. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. He uh, addresses them uh, in a way that to cease their fears. And when he got into the boat, we're told that the wind ceased. Their fears could be put away because it is Jesus whom they knew that had come to them. Think about that. Why should they not be afraid? Because it is I. It's because you know who I am. I'm not a ghost. I'm the one that you know. You think about sometimes when you call someone, or maybe you knock on someone's door, and someone says, who is it? And you simply say, it's me. Your voice is enough because the relationship is so strong. They know who you are. And you can just say, it's me. And they, they are able to identify and recognize you. Jesus here says, take heart, it's, it is I, the one that you know. You don't have to be afraid of me because you are the ones that have been following me. But strangely enough, when Jesus uses that language, it is I, it's actually the same language that is used by Jesus in other contexts where he says the I am sayings. You remember, for instance, in John's gospel when Jesus is uh, addressing his opponents and Jesus has that, uh, that tense moment when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And it tells us that Jesus' opponents picked up stones and they were ready to kill him because they recognized that what he was doing was he was claiming the name of God for himself. The name I am was the name that God gave to himself when he appeared to Moses in Exodus 3. When Moses said, who do I say has sent me? And and God said to Moses, tell them I am who I am has sent you. Tell them I am. And that language, I am, is the language when it was translated into the New Testament Greek. It's the same language that Jesus uses about himself. And so as we think about Jesus here addressing his disciples, he addresses them by saying, you know me. I'm the one that you're familiar with. It's me. And yet as the one who walks on the waves, he's also pressing them to think, do you know 
the fullness of who I am. That I am the one who walks on the water. I am God in the flesh. I am has come to you. Therefore, you don't need to be afraid. That, and as the one who's walking on the water, it lends itself to supporting this idea of thinking that Jesus is using the divine name or allowing his disciples to look at him in light of that. And so Jesus here is showing that the support, the reason that they can have comfort is because they should know and can know who he is. To the degree that they know Jesus, they can have comfort. And stop and think about that. Apart from a belief in God, it's going to be hard to have comfort in the issues that we face in life. Because we're met with randomness, meaninglessness, chaos, fear of what might happen. It's only when we acknowledge that there is a God who is sovereign over the waves, that there is one who is more mighty than the efforts of rebellion, that we can have calmness and order in this world. But simply acknowledging that there is a God still doesn't bring comfort. Because apart from a knowledge of the character of that God, how do you know how that God will treat you? Especially when you're a failure. Especially when you continue to wrestle with sin. Especially when, like the disciples, you're someone that continues to struggle against sin in your life. And it looks like you're making very little progress. That as much effort as you're putting in, it seems like the wind is pushing back and you're not going anywhere. How can you think that God is for you when there's so much in your life that would give justification to think that God is against you? And it's only when you know who this God is. And it's only in Jesus that you see the character of God shine most brightly. When you see the face of God in Jesus. Jesus came into this world to show the glory of God. God is present in all places. And we live our lives oftentimes without acknowledgement to the God who is. But in Christ, we come to find the comfort of God because we can trust that God. There's a reason that we can take heart. Because it is him. We're not alone. But Christ is with and for his people. And that he meets them in their difficulties. What are our difficulties? Ultimately, our difficulties don't remain simply at the physical. They're not merely the circumstantial. Our greatest difficulty is is our sin that has separated us, that has brought the judgment of God upon us. But God has sent his son into this world to overcome those difficulties. And Jesus meets us in our difficulties by bearing the judgment of God himself in order to, to deliver us from our problems. And so he tells his disciples, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So he walks on the water displaying the presence of God. It shows us who he is, but it shows us why we can have comfort because of who God is revealing himself in Christ, the one that we have come to know. And as we understand Jesus, we can understand God. It tells us, though, that he got into the boat and the disciples were utterly astounded. They were wondering at all these things. And then it says they did not understand about the loaves. 
They did not understand. The word there for understand is a word that originally meant to bring together. You think about a puzzle pieces. You might have a whole bunch of puzzle pieces and you, you have to connect the, the pieces together in order to see the whole picture. As long as all the pieces are apart, you don't appreciate what the picture is trying to show you. Or you think of a detective. A detective has to take all the details and to see how does this all come together and fit to make one explanation as to what has happened. Here the disciples could not bring together what has happened at the feeding of the 5,000. Lots of people were fed. It was amazing. Lots of people saw it. It doesn't mean that they understood it though. Lots of people there saw nothing more than a political savior that had come. And they hadn't understood what it was teaching them about the Jesus who is before them. Even when it tells us that they came to Gennesaret, it tells us that people recognized Jesus. But to the degree that they recognized them was the degree of comfort that they ultimately had. Those who saw him nothing more than as a miracle worker, a healer, found healing. And they were simply longing to touch the fringe of his garments in order to be healed or to be saved. But did they really understand who Jesus is? Jesus has come to bring healing or saving us from our sin. And we have to understand Jesus in that light. It tells us not only that they didn't understand, but why? Because they were hardened in their hearts. At the core of their being, they were still a heart of stone. And scripture says that's true of every one of us. By nature, we have a heart of stone and we need to have a heart of flesh so that we would embrace what God reveals so that we would treasure the Lord Jesus and uh, embrace uh, his grace. That's a work of God's uh, salvation to be able to not only understand these things, but to delight in them. And so as you think about the miracle of the walking on the water, we have to push ourselves to think, why did Jesus do this? He did it to show who he is and what he has come to do to meet us in our difficulties. And he ultimately does that at the cross. He meets us in our difficulties and he establishes peace. And therefore we can take heart because our God will fulfill his purposes. He will do everything that he has purposed to do. And we can trust in Jesus who is God in the flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about the miracles of Christ, that they would point us to the identity of who he is. We thank you that uh, we can find one in whom we can find comfort. And we pray that by your spirit, you would lead us in your truth. Go before us in Jesus' name.